Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. Today we are joined by New York Times writer and Pulitzer Prize winning author Timothy Egan, whose latest work is a biography, Short Nights of the Shadowcatcher. Shadowcatcher was a name given to acclaimed photographer Edward Curtis by American Indians when Curtis traveled to nearly 80 tribes, taking their photos, documenting their traditions, languages, and culture in the early 20th century. Timothy Egan, welcome to the program. Hi, Stephen. Great to be with you. Tim, you know, I think what drew you to the story, I assume, is answered by the subtitle you gave your book, The Epic Life and Immortal Photographs of Edward Curtis. Is that correct? Very good observation on your part. (laughs) I I love people who get it right off the bat. Yeah, you're right. The story arcs that I found in this man's life were remarkable. I mean, I think most Westerners, and I'm a third-generation Westerner, know something about Curtis, if for no other reason than you've seen the pictures in galleries and in documentaries and in the background, but most of us don't know anything about the man and the life. And once I started looking at the life itself, I was just struck by these extraordinary leaps that he made, the size of the accomplishment, and then the tragedy of his life in the end. All those things, to me as a writer and looking for drama, were things that drew me to him. Yeah, and can you can, can sketch the epic nature of it for us? Yeah, just in, in real brief form, this is a guy with a sixth-grade education who was living in a homesteader shack, developed a very prominent and prosperous business as a portrait photographer, became like the Annie Leibovitz of his day. He was shooting President Teddy Roosevelt's daughter's wedding at one point because he was so famous as just a portrait photographer, then gave it all up to pursue this incredible dream of trying to document in pictures and in audio form and ultimately in motion picture form of Native American life before it vanished. He wanted to capture the authentic, the real, the rituals, the things they did before they became all westernized and blended into society. He thought it would take him five years. It ended up taking most of the rest of his life, at least 30 years. And in the end, he accomplished something magnificent, these 20 volumes that became his magnum opus, the North American Indian. But he also lost it all, too. He lost his copyright, he lost his money, etc. So for people who aren't familiar with Curtis's photographs, and, and most of us, as you say, who live in the Southwest or the West have seen them, but for people who haven't, what do you think makes them immortal? Because they seem to be. I mean, I went to the Andrew Smith Gallery, and some of them, they're selling for tens of thousands of dollars. Some individual photographs are actually selling for as much as $250,000 really? for one photograph. And by the way, they weren't photographs in the traditional sense. They were photogravures because he did this arduous process. But let me answer your question. I'll answer it with what I heard in Indian country. And I tried to go to almost every reservation, every tribal homeland that Curtis had went to. I went to all but a few of them up in Canada. And Curtis is revered in Indian country. And you ask why you see these pictures there, you see these prominent places in the, in the public halls of Indian reservations, and you ask why, and people say, the humanity, look in the eyes, look in the faces. Those are not character types. They're not the dime store Indian or the noble savage or the you know, poor, crushed, forgotten thing. They're human beings, and that's what Curtis brought to this venture. He was a portrait photographer who was able to find personality in the faces, in the eyes. I mean, some of these pictures, these people are laughing, they're smirking, they're having a good time. Other ones, they're looking so far away that there's three dimensions of loss and grief. 
The picture he took of Geronimo, the last warrior of the Apache, is immortal. The picture he took of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, who led the Nez Perce War, the famous Indian Napoleon, is immortal. Because in the faces of those individuals, you see something that's universal. And that's what I heard Each portrait seems to tell a story of that person. That's that's very well put. In in a very Um, human way. That's exactly right. Now, Curtis... This is where there's a bit of a controversy in academia, but nowhere else. People say, well, you know, Curtis, he posed his subject, so therefore it's not authentic. Well, of course he posed his subject. He was a portrait photographer. He never denied posing. He gave interviews with the New York Times where he talked about his process. And, you know, he would take sometimes up to two years of research of an individual before he would take that person's picture. So that's why you see the story in the picture. The story is in what they're wearing, what's on their face, where they are, whether they're above a stream or on a horse. Uh, He shoots Red Cloud at age 91, one of the most famous of the Indian chiefs. And it's the best picture I've ever seen of him. I've seen a million pictures of Red Cloud. Easily his Geronimo picture is the best. But because Curtis took the time to get to know these people, and then he would say, how do you want to pose? So in Geronimo's case, he posed without any headdress without any facial ornamentation. He posed in a primitive army blanket, which is what the army gave him when he surrendered. Now, you mentioned in uh, talking about Curtis's epic life, his photography of the Roosevelt wedding, and the story of how he gets to know Roosevelt is itself an amazing story and sort of propels Curtis to national fame. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Again, when you consider that he came from nothing, a guy with a sixth-grade education living on a homestead, basically picking berries. Ten years after that, he's at Roosevelt's summer White House being feeded by the president and talking to Mrs. Roosevelt about his Roquefort dressing. Curtis was a very charming, handsome, charismatic, driven guy. That was part of it. He had this great personality. But once he launched on this magnificent obsession, it caught the imagination of the American public. Yeah, and he calls it the cause, too, and that's exactly right, what it was. Right, it totally consumes him. Right. He, it kills his marriage. I mean, he's gone 350 days a year. He hardly sees his children. He neglects his prosperous portrait photography business in Seattle. He becomes a monomaniac, basically. He doesn't sleep. That's why it's called Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. He never got more than a few hours of sleep. He's up all night trying to develop a picture, trying to get it just right. So to answer your question, you know, how he ends up with Roosevelt, some of it is luck. I mean, he rescues these two guys on Mount Rainier. They turn out to be the founder of the Audubon Society and the founder of the National Geographic Society, who quickly lead him to other prominent people, which leads him to Roosevelt. So he had good luck. But he had a forceful, driving personality. And I think Roosevelt, remember, who created many of our national parks and was the first founding conservationist of the West, saw the cause as something that was not just land. It was people themselves. Roosevelt saw the fact that Indian life was being destroyed. Well, he's, he understood it. I wouldn't say he was that sympathetic, but he understood it through Curtis. You tell so many different stories of Curtis's involvement with Indians, but to me, if I wanted to give one example of Curtis's perseverance and experience, it would be with the Hopis and the snake dance. And I wonder if you could tell us something about that. I would agree with you. Curtis spent more time with the Hopi um, in what was then Arizona Territory 
than any Indian people at all, and he was a native of the Northwest, and it was very hard to get there. Uh, he had to go by train and by horse, et cetera. It usually took him three or four days to get from his home in Seattle. He was determined to capture their snake dances, which is their central ritual, sort of like what Christian Advent and Easter are to Catholics. And it took him more than 10 years before he was finally trusted enough to be on the inside. And in order to do that, he became a member of the Snake Dance Society. He handled these rattlesnakes. I mean, it's on, you, you tell it so graphically. I mean, these snakes, these rattlesnakes are wrapped around his neck. Right. Once they made him a member of it, they send him out. The very It's a 10-day ritual. On the first day, you have to go out and find rattlesnakes, and they draped him around his neck. And if that didn't test his will, nothing would. Later that night of that first day, he sleeps in a pit with the snakes, and there sleeps with them for the next 10 days. So that's what he had to go through in order to become intimate enough with the society. And they ultimately trusted him enough to make him, as I said, a member of the ritual. But he went through extraordinary lengths. Then when you see the pictures from the snake dance with these priests with the snakes around them, they're amazing. And no one's ever been able to get that close before. It's because he took the time. And the truly unbelievable part of the story to me is that in the end, he sees a lot of photographers, he sees a lot of Anglos waiting for him to come out and be part of this, and he decides it wouldn't be good for him, and it wouldn't be good for the Hopi people if he participated, and he decides not to participate after this 10-year effort. Right. I should have finished the story. Thank you for doing that. That's what happened. After spending 10 years going back year after year to win the trust and to learn the ritual and to understand this is important to understand what it meant, that it wasn't just a lot of hokum, as the outsiders all said, that every single act involved with those snakes had meaning, and it meant a lot for the rest of the year, for the harvest, for rain, for all of that. After all of that, his crowning moment is he's going to come out on the day of the central day of the ceremony, and he pulls his punches. He decides not to participate because, remember, most of these things he's shooting are outlawed, and He's yeah, there sort was of a specific a federal law that, that made it illegal to, for Indians to, to actually be an Indian, to act like an Indian. Here is the central—you just put your finger on it. This is the central irony. We love the First Amendment. It is the First Amendment for a reason. It allows us to worship the God of our choice and to say anything we damn well please. We've got free speech. There's an asterisk, or there was an asterisk to the First Amendment, and it was Indians. They were not allowed to worship the God of their choice. They were not allowed to practice their religion. It was a felony— through the Indian Crimes Code Act, which was passed in the 1880s and not repealed until 1930, for Indians to practice certain rituals. So Curtis is shooting these things that are essentially felonies for the natives to participate in. Well, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz. I'm very pleased to have on the phone today Timothy Egan. Tim is the author of a biography of Edward Curtis called Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. And Tim, Curtis also spent a fair amount of time in New Mexico, and I, I became intrigued with all these photographs. I should say, listeners, if you're interested, just Google Edward Curtis photographs, and you'll see a lot of photographs. If you're interested in specific ones about a Pueblo, Google that Pueblo. But I looked at maybe 11 or 12 Pueblos and photographs of those Pueblos, and really it seems to me only the Acoma ones have somehow really gained currency, at least today. And yet all of them are amazing. 
you're right. The stuff at Acoma has, you know, become the most prominent and some of the most the pictures that fetch the most money because he's got these. The old well at Acoma is one of his most famous, and he did spend three years going up and down the the Sky City, as it's called. But his work among the Zuni are fantastic. His work at Taos is unbelievable. He came back time and again, going up and down the Rio Grande shooting, in some cases, mythic stories, you know, metaphors, having people in dream states, having people in semi-naked. He was trying to experiment in some of the cases there. But it's important to understand, each of these volumes are not just pictures, but they're stories of nations. So Curtis went into this not just determined to show the people visually, but to tell their story. So he didn't write just captions. He wrote thousands and thousands of words on each tribe about their creation myths, about their diet, about their love lives, about their religion, about their marriages, about whether they're polygamous or not, about whether they ate meat or not. And the Apache would never eat fish because they had a superstition on it. They loved bear, all these different things. He was doing really deep anthropology. And to this day, in fact, his work on the Crow, for example, in Montana, is credited as being the best field anthropology that anyone's ever done on that tribe. So in New Mexico, he spent a lot of time getting a great range of pictures, but also, again, telling these nation stories. So some people might wonder how Curtis managed to spend 30 years of his life doing this and giving up his successful portrait studio. And the answer to that seems to be J.P. Morgan. Right. Morgan, at the time, was our Federal Reserve Bank. We didn't have a Federal Reserve Bank until 1913. So when the American economy failed, which it often did, at that time with these collapses of the railroad, they went to the house of Morgan, J.P. Morgan, our richest banker, and he couldn't give a rip about Indians. In fact, Morgan probably did more to further the collapse of the tribes than any other industrialist because he made a lot of his money on consolidating the railroads. And the railroads, of course, were what destroyed Indian country. Once, you know, they, the Indians could always handle these stragglers and these wagon trains that came through their, their, their territory. But once these iron horses came through, they knew they were doomed because what it meant was within 10 years of the railroads being in, the bison were gone, and that was a food source. So um, Morgan was not a friend of Indians, but Curtis got him to finance this great undertaking. In fact, there was a headline I saw in the New York Times that said, Morgan money to keep Indians from oblivion. A great irony, I thought, after all he'd done. So Curtis made a deal with the richest banker in the world that he would finance his undertaking, but Curtis would work for free. Curtis himself would not accept a salary. He, he used all this money from Morgan to hire Indian translators, to hire technicians, etc. So he had a staff of up to 30 people at one time. That's partially how he could accomplish this. But he himself didn't take a dime, and ultimately it proved to be a pact with the devil because Morgan ended up owning him. Yeah, it's amazing. And one of the things I think we should also mention is Curtis ends up taking probably the best-known photograph of Morgan himself. Yeah, it is really interesting. <laughs> I, I urge everyone to look at the portrait in the book. And the same is, is true of Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt. He I've takes probably the, the best-known photograph. The actual of original of that picture, Roosevelt, remember, was the most popular American of his age, not you know, known worldwide. Millions of pictures were taken of him. When he wrote his autobiography, 
What did he say? He said that one picture stood out. It was the one that Edward Curtis took of him. And at the front of his autobiography, what picture did he use? He used the picture that Curtis took of him. He actually looked sort of scholarly and sort of thoughtful, not the usual Roosevelt with the flaming teeth and the the warrior Roosevelt. That's what Curtis had. And you mentioned it and hit on it at the start of this interview, which is that he had an ability to find the person, the deep person inside. And that's what what made him so great as a portrait photographer. Now, now the amount on the funding that Morgan gives Curtis is, is astounding. Two and a half million dollars, not in inflated 2013 money, in 1900 money. Yeah, in 1900 money, which is more than $100 million right now. And Curtis went through it rather quickly because, again, he was paying for the staff. He was trying to do this incredible finishing process that took so much money. And these books were not for sale. This is why they're so valuable. I mean, a few months ago, there was a single set of the 20-volume Curtis North American Indian. It sold at auction for almost $2 million, and it was the highest amount ever paid for a photographic lot at Swan's Auction House. Why? Because Curtis only did 227 of them, and he was selling them at the time for $3,000 to universities and rich people. And so the Kaiser of Germany bought one, the Pope bought one, the King of England bought one, Vanderbilt brought one, Morgan bought, had 10 of them by rights of their paying. But Curtis never made any money off it because he was so deep in the hole. So Morgan financed him a lot. In the end, when Curtis was desperate, he gave up his copyright to the House of Morgan. So when these pictures started to make a lot of money for people down the road, Curtis never got a dime. He had lost everything to Morgan. Well, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. On the phone with me is Tim Egan. Tim is a writer for the New York Times. He's also written a wonderful biography of Edward Curtis called Short Nights of the Shadowcatcher. And, uh, Tim, you, you mentioned earlier this team that Curtis had working with him. And of all the members of the team, the person that really uh, comes alive to me is Alexander Upshaw. And it seems like he means so much to the whole Curtis project. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I felt the same way in researching the book. Let me tell your listeners about Upshaw briefly. He was a Crow Indian, full-blooded. His father had been a chief of the Crow, which is a tribe based in Montana on the Montana-Wyoming border. Their traditional enemies were the Sioux, among other people. Upshaw, at a young age, was uprooted from his home, as a lot of Indians were in the early 20th century, and sent away to a basically a white school. It's called the Carlisle Indian School. And there the job was to wash the Indian out of him and return him as, quote, a man. Now, what it meant to be a man was to not be an Indian. So Upshaw comes back to Montana after spending 15 years at this Indian school, and he's a changed man. Curtis hires him because he's intelligent, he's educated, he speaks the language, he speaks several languages. But Upshaw is incredibly conflicted. He's essentially working to preserve what all his schooling has told him is useless. So he spent the first part of his life having the culture washed out of him. Now he spends his adult life trying to preserve Indian culture. Curtis and he become very close. They work together for about seven years, including, amazingly, deciphering the truth of what happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn with Custer. But then a terrible thing happens to Upshaw. Somebody kicks the crap out of him in a bar in Montana. They throw him in jail, and there he bleeds to death and dies at the age of 37. This is just a few weeks after he had met President Roosevelt with Curtis. Now, that Um, alone, we should stop right there and say that Curtis took Upshaw with him to meet with then-President Roosevelt 
to argue the Indian cause directly to the president of the United States. Exactly, because Curtis Curtis started out as sort of a mercenary. He thought these pictures of Indians would be really cool and he could make a lot of money off them because they were vanishing. They were disappearing, and people thought Indians would be gone entirely because they were disappearing so quickly. But over the course of his life, he becomes more of an advocate. He becomes more of a sympathizer. He sees that, that American government policy is to erase Indian culture and what a tragic thing this sort of cultural holocaust is. So he becomes an advocate for Indian citizenship. And so that's why he takes Upshaw, his best Indian friend, to the White House with him. One of the dishonors is that when the Washington Post describes this great meeting between Curtis and Roosevelt in one of the last days of his presidency, they said he was there with an Indian who said something like he grunted. I mean, they didn't even give him his name. They didn't even mention his name. Yeah, he was um, a very well-educated man. Right, right, and very well-educated. And so it, it was a tragedy and really hurt Curtis had really hit him hard when his best Indian friend, Alexander Upshaw, was beaten to death in a bar in Montana and died at a young age. Yeah, as you say, Curtis himself seems to be conflicted because he sort of says at the beginning of this 20-volume set that he's not going to re-argue the injustices of Indians that were done to Indians, the breaking of the trees, the betrayals, etc., etc., but then at points he just can't stop himself, and he does argue it. He just can't stop himself. He sees so much of what the injustice has been to Indians that he just, you know, he does start out, he's very detached. He's very, you know, unemotional. He just said, I'll let other people argue. Ah, who cares about the politics? Who cares about the broken treaties? Who cares about the fact that these people are living in a, in a netherworld existence, neither citizens nor sovereigns? He wants to get pictures. But as his life goes on, he becomes more and more outraged. Where, where it reaches a peak, by the way, is in California in the 1920s, where a state that once had 300,000 native people is down to just a few hundred living in the shadows of the Redwood country in the north. And Curtis recounts these just atrocities of where the settlers would shoot Indians for target practice, where they would rape their women without ever being charged where they would steal from them. This is all in the gold rush era and beyond up until about 1900. And he just, he blasts the missionaries for trying to, for bringing them disease and all this and that, which was not a popular position to take, by the way. At the time, there hadn't been a lot of sympathy for the injustices done to Indians. The conventional wisdom was that they were savages and they deserved what they got and they were fading away. I, I want to return to, to something you raised earlier, and, and that actually your book raises, and that is what was Curtis actually doing when he's taking these photographs? Now, some of the photographs are photographs of ceremonies or, and of everyday life, mm -hmm. but some of them are, as you say, posed. And so is that art? Is it documenting a form of reality? Is it myth-making? Right, and that's one of the great academic discussion points of Curtis, which I usually prefer to avoid because I think the academics go around in circles on this thing. Two things real quick. Remember, Curtis was a portrait photographer, so of course he posed people. That's what he did for a living. He didn't start out as a documentarian, but as time went on, he became a documentarian, which is why some of his portraits now are more valuable as documentary sources. You look at the face, you look at the earrings, you look at the things that people are wearing, you look at the context, and you can learn a lot about Indian life from 110 years ago. So he didn't start out that way, but he became more of a documentarian. And his film, which I haven't mentioned yet, which became the first feature-length documentary film ever done, finished in 1914, 
and is hailed now as a pioneering achievement. Why? Because he shot the entire thing with an all-native cast. He shot the entire thing on location in northern British Columbia, and the whole story was built around an Indian story, a creative story. It's like a docudrama, right? Exactly, exactly. To this day, it's hailed by scholars and Indians alike for getting it right. So he became more of a documentarian. So Curtis was a hybrid. He was an anthropologist because he, he told their stories. He was a photographer, a portrait photographer. He was someone who did romanticize on occasion because he was trying to do metaphors. He liked to shoot nudes as dream states, etc. And he was a documentarian. So he was all those things. I mean, he was a great, I call him Indiana Jones with a camera, which is what he was. He sort of banged around all over the West in pursuit of this great challenge. But if you look at the photographs of, like, the vanishing Indian, yeah. or there's a photo of an Indian on a white horse with a horse drinking out of the street. I mean, there, you get this, this majesty, this respect for right. Indians and their culture. But you also, I guess, create an other. That is, these people aren't part of the dominant culture, and the dominant culture usually regards anybody who's not part of it as inferior. And right, so, and, and Curtis addressed that. He did the kind of interviews I'm doing with you. He did them contemporaneously with people like the New York Times, and here's what he would say. He would say, I'm not interested in shooting pictures of Indians waiting in a bread line or Indians Right, he didn't their... show the reservation situation. People were starving to death on these reservations at the time. Well, in some cases. And, yeah. in fact, he, he actually alleviated some of the hunger among the Sioux. He brought a, a, a beef steer and fed them. If he was, he would never witness starvation and just callously stand by. He was too involved with that. But he said this throughout his life. I'm not interested in showing the ravages of contemporary reservation life, that is, impoverished Indians waiting for handouts from the government. He said, I want to preserve some of the majesty that is slipping away. So what he would do, he would go into a tribe, and he would find people, and he'd become friends with them. He would took months or years to become their friends. And then he would say, what kind of headdress did your father wear? And where did you go to fight white people? Or where did you go to, to find buffalo? Or where did you go to fish? And then they would put on, say, the headdress that their father had worn and go to the stream site. So that's what he did. To me... And he used he, Upshaw in part to authenticate all this, to make right. sure... Upshaw these tra- was his most famous uh, translator, as I said, but he always had somebody on staff who was close with the tribes, mm-hmm. an Indian uh, individual. But here's what I wanted to say. It's no different than if I had gone to Scotland and tried to do a book about the great clans of Scotland, and I came upon the McGregor family, and I said, uh, do you have a kilt that your grandfather used to wear? And he goes, yeah, sure, I've got something back here. And he goes and gets his kilt and puts it on, and I shoot his picture. You know, would that be fake because I'm shooting the McGregor clan in their family kilt? And that's what he did. So I guess, to me, the bottom line is how Native American people today regard these photos and regard Curtis's work. Yeah, there's an academic dispute over, you know, the authenticity, et cetera, and I think it's a phony, really bogus argument. But I went to Indian country, and I went to almost every reservation, and I heard nothing but the highest regard for Curtis. And what's more important, I saw it. The pictures are everywhere on the reservations. They really appreciate the fact that he got them. They really appreciate the fact that he recorded their language on this primitive audio recorder. And in some cases, he got the last person to speak the language, which was huge when they went to restore the language 100 years later. He was the last person in some cases to get a motion picture 
capturing of one of the rituals. And so he's revered in Indian country. He's valued in Indian country for seeing these people for the cultural units that they were and, more importantly, for the human beings that they were. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank my guest today, Timothy Egan, whose new biography is entitled Short Nights of the Shadowcatcher. Thanks also to my producer, Joe Green. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz. Podcasts of my recent shows are available on iTunes under Stephen Spitz. Archives of all my past shows are available at the Spitz Report, stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.